0: Pretty good. Pretty good. Woke up at about two in the morning, and uh, I right. couldn't get back to sleep for a little bit. So that was uh that was always great.
1: Uh, Sounds yeah. terrible.
0: Yeah, I try to manifest my dreams. You think about hunting or think about fishing before you go to bed, like not the actual catching of something or shooting of something, but just like getting out there or being on top of a mountain, something nice, calming, so I can dream about hunting or fishing. But I end up like having dreams about being a working at a Smelting plant, or I'm in the parking lot of a library and I witness a murder <laughs> suicide or something like that. It's like, what the hell is going on? And so that was, you wake up, I woke up at two in the morning, I was just, just hearts freaking racing because, um, yeah, I think it was like a murder suicide, something like that in the library parking lot. But Man,
1: there's some inner demons you were battling.
0: Yeah, I think I uh, read the news too much or watch the news too much.
1: Any at all is almost too much.
0: Yeah, you just plant some bad stuff in there, and so then you don't really deal with it, I guess, and then, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not too, uh, <laughs> do, you, do you go to, like, websites and figure out what your dreams mean?
1: Uh, no. No, there's I, no, there's I, no reason. I am not a middle-aged, divorced white woman, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> some of my some students were talking about uh, Facebook moms, and just, just just ripping on them, like, uh, they say, uh you know, hey, stay off social media and, and don't gossip kids, you know, just teenagers, you need to grow up and teenagers, this, 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 you know, stay off social media. It's bad for you. And then they say, and then they go immediately to Facebook and proceed to do everything they told their kids not to on Facebook. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a good observation. So uh, how else are we adults pretty jacked up, but it's kind of cool to get that feedback um, from the kids yeah. and actually talk to the kids. So when did, um, You leave for Belize.
1: Um, April eleventh is was my first day off, I think. And then,
0: what was was kind of the weather like when you left? Because I was thinking on the way home about uh, asking you if that was like the beginning of the spring thaw, and then you got to miss that, or if it had already uh, been kind of the the melt had already happened.
1: Yeah, the winter here was just dragging on you know, into April and it wasn't really melting at all. We were just barely starting to crest into the uh, warming numbers of above 32. And so when we left, it was still right around 32 in the daytime high, maybe 34, 35 and overnight lows around 15 or so. And so, you know, whenever we came back, which is the 28th of April, it was, 45 every day and getting to be 50 every day and everything. And the snow was 80% gone when we came back. Nice. That's and perfect so it was timing. The, it was the absolute best.
0: Yeah. How was Belize?
1: Man, it's got me wanting to buy land there. Oh, yeah? I, I kid you not. Yeah. It was a uh, just a fantastic time. The only thing that was kind of tough is, like, you know, for the interior here, that April time frame is, like, the best time to go out of here but specifically down in there april and may are their hot months and so Mm. it was 100 degrees every day whether you were on the beach in the mountains you know the only thing that the beach had going for it was that there was water that was very warm like a warm shower and a stiff breeze all day Mm. that made it very enjoyable
0: how did the kids like it as you had them out of school for a little bit we talked about this previously on one of the podcasts about uh You know, pulling kids out of school, having educational opportunities, experiences. So how did they take to an environment? Have they been in anything close to that before?
1: You know, we've taken our son, who's now seven, to Hawaii before. I think the last time he was there, he was maybe three, maybe two and a half. I don't, I think probably close to two and a half. Um, So he has been in it. But, you know, Hawaii is a lot more mild. Yeah. It's, It's like 80s, everyday type of deal. Whereas Belize was, you know, 15, 20 degrees warmer. And what, but, about, uh, what about the cultural they, stuff? They did great. You know, Belize, English is the first language. Um, you know, being in Alaska, it, the truth of it is that, you know, there aren't a ton of minorities everywhere you go. Um, so, you know, going to a place where we were, it was a very stark difference that we were the minority. And, you know, my kids mentioned stuff about it not in a negative way, but just like, whoa, there's, you know, not a lot of white people here. And it's like, yep, yeah, you're right. Cause we're, you know, in a different country. And so it was kind of, that was one interesting aspect that I was at the front of my mind at times when we were navigating through cultural differences and stuff. And, um, and of course some of it was played up in some areas for touristy reasons, mm-hmm. whether we were in a border town in Guatemala at, at a big Mayan ruin or, you know, At a big flea market where people are trying to sell like traditional type of things and stuff. And so, but they did really well. You know, um, Belize English is a first language. So things were kind of easy to navigate for my kids and us. Um, Guatemala was a little bit different, but the whole thing was great. Mm
0: -hmm. I've never been down there. I haven't been over to Europe. Went to Guam to visit my brother when he was stationed there. But uh, other than that, just been uh, Caribbean, Jamaica, Bahamas. Canada but uh, yeah I'd like to we'd like to go down there and do some bone fishing or something like that we'd like to go to Europe we'd like to do a whole bunch of stuff but we'll see what happens first
1: yeah we went fishing in a town in Belize called Placencia which was just a a blast you know we uh, booked a charter for me and my son um, for like a private thing for all day and it was amazing we we caught five or six pretty good sized uh, king mackerel three or four Barracuda, um, a couple small, what they called Bonitos, which are, I think, just Spanish mackerels. Um, They're like a baby bluefin tuna, pretty much. And, you know, those were about the size of a football that we cut up as bait for the Barracuda. And then we caught this one interesting uh, fish called a lizard fish. I can't find, it must be a local name, because I can't find any pictures of what it was, and I didn't take any of that specific fish, but it was probably seven, eight inches long and it reminded me of like an Irish lord yeah. with just a giant mouth on Interesting. it. Interesting. Was your what was your guide
0: like? Was he a local person or someone that guided down there seasonally?
1: No, he was born and raised in Placencia down there in Belize. And uh he said his dad was a commercial fisherman down there and then got into the private guiding business and then um this guy said that he bought this guiding company from another person probably 10 years ago or something and so we went out with the owner and you know no gps no nothing he knew exactly where to go we were about 15 miles off the coast and just you know he would just find different little islands that he's been to and say like oh we're gonna go over here and there's gonna be this on this side and you can look for these reefs here and this is you know what you want to what we're looking for and what we're doing and stuff and So for the Spanish mackerels, we were just trolling with really big. um, I'm trying to think of what the actual term for them is, but, you know, I think they're called like wiggle warts. But real big, um, you know, swimming jigs. Anyway, I don't know, (laughs) like a Rapala. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but they're really big and we trolled for those and that's how we got into the king mackerel. Um, And that was in about 100 to 200 feet of water. And then for the Barracuda, we were doing it in like 20 to 80 foot of water. And, you know, we had to. the Barracuda would bite and then you'd have to set the hook and stuff. And it was was awesome. I didn't lose a single one. It was just a blast.
2: Hmm.
0: I went on a charter with uh, my brother when we were in Guam. And the guy did not speak any English, but was able to kind of gesture and stuff and it was it was wild because we were just like trolling it like warp speed it was crazy to get the uh the mahi mahi and the tuna and so he would he sat up top and he just kind of looked for them, and then he'd come down uh when when we were hooked up and and help land the fish and that was about it we said maybe 10 or so words to each other it was about it and it was pretty (laughs) wild but uh you know going from southeast here All the guides are, you know, schmoozing for tips and for, you know, some of them are are from here and others are, you know, they're, they're from, they do guide in the Gulf coast during the the rest of the year and then come up here during the summer. So they've been up here. Oh, I'm pretty much local, you know, been guiding up here for five, 10 years. It's like, yeah, that's cool. So you have some experience, but yeah, it's just wild when you get uh, a real, real authentic local. The, The experience is totally different. It's gotta be pretty cool.
1: Yeah. The, uh, so, like, the official languages of Belize is Spanish and English, but in a lot of coastal areas, for whatever reason, they speak uh, a mix of French Creole. Hmm. And that is, like, an extremely predominant language along the coastal regions. And and so that's mostly what he spoke was uh, French Creole. Hmm. And it was kind of hard to understand him sometimes. And, you know, then he would speak to me in English, but he'd have like the just wildest, almost like Louisiana accent. And it's like, this is very bizarre. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chamorro, I
0: think is the language in Guam and it was just different than, you know, some, some languages you've heard maybe enough that you can pick out certain words, but yeah, it was just, it was just different. It was a great experience. It's fun to, to be in those places and, um, Guam didn't have any. I don't want to say it was a comforting thing, but when you go to a place where you haven't been before, but then you see a, a very Americanized thing, you think, "Okay, I'm not. I'm not too far from home." There's a cheesecake factory, or there's a Starbucks, or something like that, which kind of ruins the mood a little bit. But it was interesting to not see any of that and think, "Wow, I'm. We're really out here. There's 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 not even there's not even a McDonald's. It's all yeah. local. It's pretty cool." And then the uh, the amount of homes that were made out of shipping containers was pretty crazy it made a lot of sense because you get the typhoons out there and uh a shipping container is going to hold up well rather than you know wood or anything else but just that that culture thing is pretty cool yeah (laughs) yeah it's cool to to see that i think it's uh it'll be good for the kids
1: and that's how belize was is is that it was very you know i think third worldy is probably a a bit rude to say for that country, but I mean, it was definitely like no big box stores, nothing even close to that. There were some larger supermarkets that were privately owned. Um, there were no two places that had the same name. So there was no chains, you know, nothing Westernized at all. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of interesting to navigate and try and figure out where we're going to get this, where we're going to get that and that type of stuff. And But it was a lot of fun. About the
0: pace of life, Fairbanks isn't exactly a, a crazy mecca of activity and whatnot. But was there was something about the pace of life and people buying into that that were just
1: kind of that was appealing. Down there, yeah, it was it was more like island time, dude. Mm. Like, you know, you're trying to. Our phones didn't work at all, um, and so we didn't have internet on our phones or anything, and so we just had to always go. Back to our Airbnb or wherever to get internet if we needed it, but we'd kind of make a plan for the day and head out and be like, "Oh, this store was supposed to be open today, but they're not." Um, oh, yeah, these guys said they're gonna open in like 20 minutes, and it's like 20 minutes is like almost 10 till the hour, and it's like <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. It's either it's open or it's not. We'll just figure it out. If this place isn't open, we'll just walk to the next place, or you know, whatever. Yeah, it's a f- refreshing mindset getting upset when
0: something is closed. I was really offended this week because my favorite bakery here in Ketchikan 55 North is closed. Super offended. How dare they? But uh, they're, they're celebrating the birthday of one of the kids. i thinking, man, this place is... Rude. They have their values so figured out. It's so nice. And so when I tried to be offended, I'm like, oh, well, man, you're taking a week off for the kid's birthday. They're actually selling the business Is they're going to take some time. Mm. They're going to travel and... Um, the mom who I mean everything is, is is baked from scratch. It's just unbelievable. Their chorizo on a biscuit is Ooh, that it's sounds it's good. just it's not even it's not even fair. Not even fair. The biscuit is really, really good, and the, the chorizo and egg is really, really good. So every, every part of it is super good. And it just ruins all other food. You get a blueberry muffin from there, and then you try to compare it with something from Safeway or somewhere else, and this is this is trash. This is absolute MSG. You know, trash. <clears throat> I don't know. It's MSG in the Yeah, it's in everything, right? Pretty much. Probably. Um,
1: I mean, you could leave a, a pack of Safeway blueberry muffins out for a month, you know, in the heat and come back and it's like, oh, they're still moist. Yeah. So this isn't <laughs> right. We had a uh, journalism party
0: five or six years ago, and you can get those little tray of, I don't know, two dozen... Small, tiny little muffins that are about the size of a donut hole. And there was one left and no one ate it. One left no one ate it. So I just kept it in the little... I have a little cabinet with journals and pantry stuff. So whenever we have uh, staff meals, stuff like that, we can... We got plates, we got cups, and uh, sometimes, well, be an emergency bag of Ritz crackers or something like that in there. But that muffin's still in there. And it it has hardened, but no, no mold, no mildew, no anything. It is just hardened <laughs> to this... just, it's like a fossilized version of a, of a cupcake or a, of a, of a muffin. And it's pretty, it's pretty gross. It's almost like the, uh, the journalism mascot at this point, it's pretty, pretty gross, (laughs) but it speaks to the fact that there's a lot of preservatives in there. If the thing doesn't even change shape, it just dries out and hardens. Um, it's not, it's not good. It does in your body. Yeah. Yeah. The body doesn't want that. Doesn't need that. How was the food down there?
1: I mean, you better like some beans, rice, and tortillas mm. if you go down there because that's what it is. Simple. Anytime you uh, – yeah, a lot of their stuff was stew, chicken, and so you'd get like just a hunk of chicken or whatever, and it's like these – you know, it's not Tyson Farms chicken. It's like these ones – these chickens have had some tough lives. Yeah. They, they have not built up any fat or, or meat or anything because it's like a couple little gristly bites and that's your chicken. But, I mean, it was very good. You know, the Spanish type of food is my favorite food. So I was in hog heaven. Yeah. The spices,
0: that makes such a huge difference when you want to go to, um, like, cooking anything. And Abby's been really good about, uh, like, for our fish tacos and for our our venison and and, uh, caribou, just getting, like, good spice profiles i guess or and or whatever it is and just like what flavors go best with this it's pretty easy to just throw some some barbecue seasoning or something like that on it or something very simple or same thing with fish just go like a lemon pepper or something but uh testing the diversity of the meat is pretty cool and just finding these different flavors and the spices and that's one of the things that i've noticed in some of the really good restaurants is the complementary spices and yeah it's chicken but it's Seasoned in a way that makes it uh, fresh and new and exciting.
1: Yeah, our uh, you know, on our fishing trip, it the a meal was included, and I was like, Oh, yeah, they're just gonna pack some crappy little sandwiches or whatever. You know, they're gonna give us a quote lunch. But what he did is, is he made us some like fried plantains, some really nice wild rice with uh, a homemade potato salad or macaroni salad, and um. Like this jerk chicken that he made that is his, his mom's recipe and everything, and we got a big beautiful plate of food and it was so delicious. It was just unreal. There's a book, uh, "The
0: Optimist," by David Coggins, and he talks about fly fishing down in Patagonia, and the lunches where the guy the guide would get out a table, put a tablecloth down, and there'd be sausages and there'd be meats or different meats and there would be cheese and there'd be bread and there'd be wine and this was your meal on the side of a of a river in Patagonia and it just felt man that's different than a, like a sandwich or something like that that the wife made some sort of egg salad sandwich that's uh better than uh better than a gas station but not by a whole lot man that was yeah it makes me want to go down there by I mean, it's that's one of those elite sort of areas and the culture is different you have a full on lunch and you have a, a siesta it's not about fishing the entire day you still fish your face off it sounded like but uh, you have this really nice rejuvenating lunch and you're relaxing and you're enjoying the uh, the lunch as its own thing not just a small break from the fishing it's a uh, an experience in itself that sounds pretty fun
1: oh yeah and you know what's really interesting out there is that there are tons of different sized little islands out there that are just either privately owned or they're mostly privately owned and so you would see this one that's like maybe i don't know the footprint of like a a child's or a kid's soccer field and there'd be a house out there just a various stages of being built or ruined by weather and stuff and so um, my son really wanted to get some really cool seashells and uh, try and find a conch shell and stuff to, to bring home and so the guide took us to one of these little islands and the whole island was like nothing but shells like that's what the island was, was just various shells and unfortunately a, a lot of plastic trash that had, you know, just mm. kind of roamed around the ocean. But anyway, we went out snorkeling out there and saw a bunch of really cool little fish. And, you know, there was probably like six or seven hundred conch shells of various rates of decay and stuff. And so he got to have his pick of some and um, our guide went down and grabbed a, uh, a conch with a, a live little queen conch I think they're called um we brought it back and he cracked it open and cut it up and we ate it fresh right there nice that's awesome it was it was awesome so you're saying you're looking at land there <laughs> I mean pipe dream type stuff I yeah. still need to build my house
0: <laughs> well there's so, a I'm on uh, Remax Island real estate right now and there's a is a, a desirable beachfront property at secret beach five hundred and ten thousand dollars what a steal. Yeah, what no. a steal. You're right on that. Let's see how big the lot is. It's
2: uh... After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint... You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free go to mintmobile.com/waypoint that is mintmobile.com/waypoint cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/waypoint
0: the law, 75 feet of beachfront 135 feet of depth this parcel has been recently surveyed and marked This doesn't say like how big size is 75 by 135. That's very tiny. That's Yeah, like a couple ten, <laughs> they're, tens on. They they're not even given a a uh an acreage because we're less. Well, well there you go. Half a half million dollars. It Looks pretty nice. I
1: yeah, was we the for 5 or 6 days in a mountainous region? And uh we stayed with at an Airbnb that was owned by um a couple from Minnesota. Huh? And so I was picking their brain and stuff about like, oh, what's, what's the cost of living here? You know, are your taxes really crazy? Are your electric bills high, whatever? And they're like, yeah, our taxes are really crazy. It's $9 a year, $9 U.S. <laughs> a year. Oh, man. That's crazy. For, for an acre of land that has a riverfront. Jeez. So they have a, a river on one, one side. What was interesting is they said that 30 feet from the high water mark, is public property no matter if you own that land or not. Hmm. And that's like a rule for the whole country. And so he's like, "Yeah, we've had some locals come by and be like, "You should really build a barbecue pit down here by the river." And he's like, "No." <laughs>
0: huh. Yeah, man, it's it's I've gone down this road a couple of times about where to invest because real estate's always a good investment. But then you want to get something that that you're going to use. And then if you're going to use it, why would you sell it maybe or maybe you would sell it later? Hold on to it for how long? And you kind of get in that game and that, yeah, there's some lots south of town here that be cool to to be able to take a skiff out there and stay at a cabin or camp or something like that. But then you think, well, if it's not somewhere that's super unique, if I can't go there and then put up a lot of fish, if it's not really close to really, really good fishing, then why have a cabin there? And if it's just in one spot, then you're going to go to this cabin, one location, and maybe it'll prevent you from exploring different areas. And you just tuck yourself out of it. Then there's the just buy it, sit on it, wait, let it uh, accrue or uh, gain interest, and and I don't know, man, it's such a it's such a tough thing to do, especially when uh, you just finished one house and uh, can't be thinking about the next one. But maybe I guess you can. How's your house coming?
1: Uh, it's. Slow but but steady. You know we got a lot of irons in the fire right now. Getting various things bitted out and quoted. And um, I'm renting a sand this weekend to blast all the logs to get the last remaining remnants of bark that are off that the guy who partially built it left on for some ungodly reason. Did, um,
0: didn't you have uh, what was that attachment you were running
1: with the with the chainsaw? Log
0: wizard. Log wizard.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I I peeled all the logs that you know we put up but all the logs that were already up still had all that bark on it. Oh, okay. Um, And so we've been trying different stuff, like a big angle grinder, trying to grind it off with like really rough sandpaper and that works, but it's super labor intensive. We've tried getting various types of chisels and different, uh, bark splitters and stuff, but nothing really seems to work. So the sandblaster is kind of like my last ditch effort before I sit there (laughs) for a long time with, uh, a wheel grinder, just grind my till my eyeballs bleed. Yeah. How's the progress coming? At what point are you at? So just right you, now you got the upstairs
0: done. When we were there last summer or last uh, August, um, you were still constructing the lower room, and then you put the we put the logs up top, so you were able to build the second story. So the second story got done
1: before winter, right? Yeah the the roof got shingled and finished in November um and so that kind of buttoned it up for the season and then so far we're i'm in the process of routering out all the window holes um, we're gonna get it painted probably in the next two weeks hopefully um i had a buddy come and beef up my foundation just because it was on pier blocks and that's mm. not pier blocks are rated for 800 pounds and so even with nine of them that's that's way underrated yeah so we just got the foundation redone um going to get it painted, and then next week after I sandblast, clean it all up, put the subfloor down downstairs, and then start sealing and chinking the logs on the inside and outside and stuff. And so that's the next part. Nice. Then, it, then doors and windows. Nice. So
0: uh, when is that thing going to be finished?
1: Don't ask me that. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. That's sweet, though, man. Hopefully I, by the I'm, time I'm you're really back excited here. for
0: it. Yeah, I'm hoping next year we'll uh, make a trip up there. Abby and I are, t- are looking at uh, uh, sheep opportunities. I think. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, we need to. I think we're both in that. We need to do it now. We need to do it sooner. Um, once the years start stacking
1: up, then who knows
0: what happens. So.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you a report of of my Heidi Holt.
0: Yeah. After <laughs> after this fall. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty excited to see how all that stuff shakes out. I'm excited for Ryan and his uh, caribou hunt
1: up there, too. Yeah, he finally got um, – he texted me yesterday about the airplane guy finally got back to him, and oh. the the price had jumped up almost 100% from oh, wow. whenever Steve and I went in 2021. I don't know if we got a good deal because I've been flying with him for a few years or what, but, you know, it was like um, – 1700 for me and steve to fly in and out and it's 2800 for him to fly in and out now Jeez, the same airstrip so
0: yeah with uh fuel prices with demand with everything that sounds about right he was worried this last weekend we went out uh, to at the forest service cabin, did some shrimping crabbing fishing and looked for uh, some some bear on the beach flats but uh, didn't see anything and he was pretty worried about that because he contacted them and said, "Don't worry, we'll get back to you. You know, we'll get back to you. Just be patient." And then they hadn't gotten back to him. So, uh finally got back to him and it's uh
1: Yeah, way spendy. Yeah, that uh that pilot of mine that I've been using down there in, in Healy, that's kind of their MO is like they'll call you when they call you, you know. <laughs> but if if you text him and he says, "Hey, you're on the books." It's like or, "Yeah, we got you down." Like he means it. Yeah. Yeah, the, that's uh, nice. Yeah, we had an interesting time when I think me and, me and Patrick were supposed to go out um, a couple of years ago in 2019. And, you know, we were there at a time that he told us to be there and he didn't show up for five hours later and he was severely hungover. Jeez. Oh, and we were like, hey, we want to land up here. And he's like, I don't feel like it right now. You're going to land at a place five miles away from where you want to be dropped. It's like, all right. <laughs>
0: Holding all the cards. What are you gonna do? Nothing. Exactly. Man, yeah, that's. I got a message on uh, Rockslide. Someone was asking me about transporters and uh, doing some deer hunting in Southeast, and yeah, I gave some very vague answers. But uh, you know, you want to be helpful, but you don't want to just like you know give a whole bunch of really good information to to people. But if you've if they've done their homework and they've figured stuff out, but You know, transporters and stuff like that. It's not a that's not a new thing. It's nice to support uh, local business and help some people out of doing their business, but you know, from that point on like that's where all the the key decision is not the transporter to use, it's uh to where to go from there.
1: Oh, for sure. So what do you got? What's that? How has your boat been?
0: Oh, it's been awesome,
1: man. It's been uh it's
0: been a lot of fun to, to run. It was supposed to be variable winds and seas around one foot. But uh, when we were coming back, um, we hit the tide as it was just coming in, so there was a lot of water moving, and the wind was more about a fifteen southwest or southeast rather than five or variable. So uh, got a little got a little bumpy and had to do some some I wouldn't say creative. It wasn't bad, but just getting used to the weight of the skiff versus a twenty one foot North River. You know, just a lot more weight, and you can roll around a little bit more. So uh, this this Lund skiff. Uh, it it holds, it holds real nice and rides nice and cuts through the water, but, uh, so getting used to it, really enjoy it. It's fun. So you can get into such small places too, and you can just creep in and anchor and we let it go dry. Um,
1: oh, that's awesome.
0: Just about, it was like maybe a foot of water left by the time the, the low tide finally hit. But, uh, you know, just anchor correctly, do the ghost anchor and, and, uh, you'll be good to go and as long as you just pay attention to the tides so that way if uh if it does go dry or is almost dry but you're at the end of the tide it's going to get back wet pretty quick so you can get out of there but if you don't pay attention to it and you're you know halfway through the tide and you go dry then you're going to be there for a long time so um yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's super fun
1: I, I was down in valdez five six years ago with with a friend of a friend and he did the ghost anchor thing and then he had a, a canoe stashed uh, way higher than uh high tide so we dropped off and made a big base camp and stuff and took the canoe out in the flats and stuff and yeah we got into a couple bears and it was a lot of fun doing it that that way. Yeah. Are you doing spring break this year? Or is no, it all house? Just yeah. all house. Yeah. And trying to save up my with me blasting through 3 weeks of leave at work, you know, I got to save up for um sheep season. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's uh it's a fun fun start of the year hunt, getting out there, looking at those grass flats, looking after bear. Abby's somewhat motivated. I'm somewhat motivated. But we definitely want to get out there and at least look at the... It's such a nice chill hunt. Just glassing, just hanging out, just excited to be back out there after enduring the cold, stinking winter. Cold and dark, and so that uh, evening sits on the beach are are pretty fun.
1: Is... The topography of Ketchikan the kind of very similar to Valdez, where it's like as soon as you touch the land, it's just straight up.
0: Um, southern and southeast isn't like I, I think the Juno is about the the boundary of that. So we got it. It starts up, but it's not nearly nearly as extreme. When you get to Juno, it's like that, and so you can only have the city on a very thin edge of flatness that's right by the ocean. And then you get to Juneau, it's it's or southeast you get to southeast, uh southern southeast and it's there's a lot more land that's uh viable. So you can be three, four, five blocks deep in some areas. And then okay. even the smaller islands like that too. So it really starts to flatten out quite a bit. Um if you go obviously toward the mainland or get on the mainland, that's where it's uh really kind of carved out glacially and you get a lot of that more extreme stuff. But there's a lot more islands in the southern part of southeast, and so those islands have a lot less of that really extreme topography like you're talking about. But, yeah, mainland has exactly that, and it's pretty pretty cool to look at, but uh, recreationally speaking, you don't get a lot of those muskegs for deer. You don't get as much um, uh, those uh, nice flats for crabbing, fishing, and, and bear hunting. But you do get back there, and you can have a consolidation. I got my black bear back on the mainland there. I mean, there's only so much territory for them to really be in. So some of those flats will, will hold bears, but uh, you got brown bears and that's a, that's a different animal than, well, literally a different animal, but hunting those is different than hunting the nice black bears where you're just kind of hanging out. You don't have to worry about going through the woods as much as, and encountering a, a brown bear that's upset or has cubs, in black bear territory you can be a lot more, you got to be on your, on your game, but it's not as, I
1: guess, intense. Yeah, when we were down in Valdez a few years back, we saw tons and tons of bears. But it was like one of those things where it's like, oh, I see like four or five bears on this one hillside. Let's get dropped off and try and hike up and we'll go see one and shoot one or two. And, you know, we'd get up there and it's like an hour and a half in. you're hiking. You've barely made it, you know, a few hundred feet up because of the brush is so crazy, even in the springtime. And, you know, it's like, oh, yep, never see a bear. One guy lost his sunglasses. We lost the scope cover. It's like, okay, let's turn back and with our tails tucked between our legs and yeah. we'll look somewhere else a little easier.
0: Yeah, the nice thing about down here is the forest is so thick you can't glass the uh, the sides. So you were just looking for the beach whenever there, uh, something emerges uh, mm-hmm. onto the beach. And so it's like you're... You see it and then you can make your move, but everything's gonna be at eye level. You're not uh, doing any sort of hiking and then with the tides it's shoot, you can just make a make a stock and shoot the animal and if it goes into the woods a little bit it's not gonna to go too far. As long as you make a good shot, and it doesn't just pile up and then getting it back to the boat is a lot easier too. So it's a it's a really nice really nice program. That's awesome. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's good. It's a good start to the year. So you got I know
1: uh, Steve is Oh,
0: go ahead. No, you, no you're No, talking about Steve. What's he doing?
1: Yeah. He's going out uh, back down to the place in South Central um, that we've gone bear hunting. And he's taking Seamus out this year. And I got invited to go Memorial Day time, but uh, can't swing it this year. But hopefully they get a, a nice bear or two out there. And hopefully Seamus gets his first bear, which will be pretty sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. What does he uh, shoot with? I. I'm trying to think of what I don't know if he has a 243 for Seamus or a 30 out six or something fairly manageable for him. But I know that he, he had a buddy here in Fairbanks who was a pretty avid reloader and he got Seamus set up with like a several dozen rounds of, you know, a, a kid load that Seamus could shoulder a rifle pretty well and stuff. He's only 10. Mm-hmm. So I think Steve's pretty confident in the rifle and Seamus is shooting and stuff. So, Nice. Yeah, that'll be cool. What do you shoot for your bears? Um, Past few years, man, I've been using my 6'5 Creedmoor Hmm. for everything. Oh, you use a (laughs) 6'5"? I make sure to wear a big, bright pink bandana. (laughs) Uh, That's got to be one of
0: the stupidest things. It's funny. Whenever Tyler Friel posts something, even a reference to that, people just jump on that. Of all the things, of all the things. The amount of I mean, garbage it does, that he has to deal with when uh, he posts an article for out outside or outdoor life, and
1: it's crazy. It's that just boy crazy. takes shit posting to a whole nother level. I mean, he's like a for people posting stupid shit. He's like a you know water off a duck's back for that. And then he's like, here's why you are retarded. Yeah, this is why your argument is so stupid. Yeah, and then they
0: just, they don't even they're. Uh, not even aware enough to know that they've been owned and it's not (laughs) even like an owned sort of owned, owned, owned. It's a, yeah, this is, this is logic. This is real. This is experience. And And
1: they're too dumb to even know. Yeah. The person arguing is, doesn't even realize that they've been had. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's a lose, lose situation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, good for him for, you know, there are a lot of people just stay out of the, stay out of the comments. So at least he provides, uh, Some good stuff, uh,
1: good stuff on there to read. Yeah, I've been really enjoying my rifle the past few years. I mean, everything I shoot dies, but the bullet performance that I've chosen and I have a lot of ammunition for, which is a Hornady 143 grain ELDX bullet, it doesn't ever mushroom out. I've shot stuff out to 380 yards. Um, and as close as 50 yards with it, and it seems like every single shot is a complete pass through, and the bullets just seem to fragment inside of it. It never mushrooms out, so that's been a bit disappointing. But you know, shot placements there, yeah. fortunately, and everything dies. But it's it's not the performance that I really want out of that bullet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he had a post um, April third. About uh, black bear hunting cartridges, and there's a comment that he did not respond to. Uh, Why did you kill it? <laughs> 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 yeah, no need, no need. I'm just gonna leave that one there. But, yeah, yeah. Whatever works, man. Whatever works. Whatever you're comfortable with. That's, a, that's such a huge thing, such a huge deal. What um, you go uh, bipod for your uh, for Creedmoor? Do you
1: have shooting sticks, or what do you go with that? No, I I do own a bipod. It's one of those Harris bipods that are like 40 bucks and they're Mm -hmm. like a a solid pound, but I I have one. I don't really use it. Um, Most everything that I've been taking it on hunts with, you know, I either have a backpack to post on it or I lean it over my snow machine type of deal. And so there's, there's kind of no need for it. Yeah. Yeah. I had that, uh, that bipod was really nice
0: for the caribou hunt in uh, march of a couple of years ago to be able to sit and really get steady because we were away from the snow machines and then didn't have a pack but um yeah i just got one of those spartan ones that have the magnet oh snap yeah that, that, that seems pretty cool there are a couple spots up in the alpine where you just can't quite get high enough on the pack and so if i go that on top of a pack is really what i'm thinking ryan has one i just just seeing how how easy that is and how nice it is to it's super light and then because it is just a strong magnet you can take it off super easy you don't have to worry about lugging this thing that's going to get caught on brush and whatnot when you're going through so um looking forward to to using that this year and then um or maybe abby will end up using that one and i'll have to stay with that old one bulky one
1: but yeah it just seems like a seems like a good idea Oh, yeah, they definitely have their applications, that's for sure, especially with those Spartan ones. I mean, you get what you pay for. Those things are slick as can be, super lightweight. You know, they make carbon fiber ones that that are just absolutely scook them. And, you know, bipods, all those stuff have their applications, absolutely. You don't need it all the time, but when you do, it's, it's definitely nice to have it. Mm-hmm. We are still in the process of determining if we're going to bring my gun or his gun. His hand. gun is, yeah, his gun is like five pounds with the bipod and ammunition and mine's like eight right around there with everything you know but with he i think his is a seven seven millimeter mag um and i don't think i've ever shot a rifle that light so i don't know how well you know having a nice big heavy rifle or even like a seven eight pound rifle you know there's enough weight in the gun that it kind of takes some shooter error out of the situation but with a really light rifle it's like all your inaccuracies are kind of accentuated with Mm -hmm. the lightweightness of it yeah so we plan on making a time to go and shoot each other's rifles and stuff and try offhand stuff pack shooting bipod shooting that kind of thing to kind of determine what it's going to be i'm supremely confident in my rifle out to 600 yards
2: hmm.
1: at least so but as for his i've never shot a seven millimeter mag or anything so we'll see yeah it makes a it makes a big difference most of the, the
0: i can't recall the deer shot that i had that was over 200
1: that's nice yeah
0: my uh mule deer was uh more in the, the 280 300 range but um, yeah, it's been nice to, you get in the alpine up here and there's usually some some texture. You see something from a long range, so you could make a long shot. But for the most part, it's just been, you just duck behind something and pop up and then, and then make it happen. So it's been uh, pretty nice that I don't have to worry about this cap that I have because the only shot I'm going to get is from this distance. You know, I can move it and make it more comfortable. So I definitely got to put a lot more downrange so I can get some longer shots because those sheep seem like you got to be
1: you got to be good to at least 400 or so just in yeah, case mine yeah the only sheep I shot was like 375 and then like right over 400 for the follow up shots and stuff and and so after those and you know I never had shot that particular rifle out to that range and it it was not dialed in out that far yeah. I can tell you that much yeah it seems down here the there's like a carpet in the alpine
0: over everything so you can make really quiet stocks and it's really nice to to be able to do that whereas up there with the shale there's no way and those those spaces are so massive you can't necessarily go up and around and drop down on them you're gonna have to shoot across the face and that's the longer ones so that's just what i've seen from youtube i'm you know talking like i'm an expert or anything like that but like in my scouting and my mental preparedness thinking about these longer shots, thinking about the terrain that's going to be there and how different it's going to be. And so don't just assume because I've blacktail hunted in the alpine that it's going to be an easy slam dunk. It's going to be different. So I'd rather have it be easier than I expect than uh, go up there thinking it's going to be, oh, no big deal. And you just, you know, sheep hunt. You know, I'm a hardcore Alaskan. I can do this. I can go on the exercise bike and I
1: I hike on the Stairmaster. I'll be fine. Yeah, you know, it definitely is challenging, but I don't think it's, I think it's overhyped a little bit. Like it, it can be extremely arduous and everything. And it, they generally are, but I don't know. I, I feel like with the right mental preparedness, it's like, Oh yep, I'm tired. My legs are tired. Just keep going. Yeah. Don't think about it. Don't think about the walk back.
0: Yeah. I think if you, if you undersell the story, then you're just kind of hurting yourself. So it has to be epic, epic, epic. That way you sound like more of a badass. <laughs> I've seen a couple uh, other YouTube videos. Ryan sent me a couple that were pretty good. Some some local type folks. One guy just had this big old dip in the entire time, solo hunt. You know, no sponsored camo, just a dude who's just out there doing it. Um, pretty cool to see that. Just a regular person going out there filming themselves. Some some clumsy some clumsy stuff, but just a just the honest documentation of of a sheep hunt not anybody trying to get sponsored or trying to be anything that
1: he's not it's it's pretty cool to see those yeah you know it's it's interesting because it's like if you think about all the alaskan doll sheep hunts that have happened over the years it's like how many have not been recorded and people still get it done mm-hmm. how many have been done a hundred years ago that are still being done kind of the same way except for the gear but you know people still hiking yeah. people still getting in there and shooting them with whatever they have and getting it done. Yeah. I got some, uh, a coworker who's shot like a dozen sheep with him and his son and I try and send him or get pictures and stuff. I'm like, Hey, let's see some pictures. He's like, you know, I didn't take any photos on this hunt at all. You know, we got one, but I don't even have a photo of it. Here's it at my house, but that's it. That's such a refreshing mindset.
0: It's so cool to to see that and, you know with the explosion, we've talked about this a lot and it's one of the issues in the in the industry is you're selling things and you want people to go and have these experiences and you hear about them so you want to go but at the same time you know you're are we in 10 years going to be worried about you know other closures or um you know i, I don't know there's there has to be a, a thought of the future if you're not thinking about the future and what the consequences of all this content are then you know i don't know i think that's I guess it's not a responsibility, but it would probably be a good ethical thing to think about. What's the, what's the consequence of all this stuff? And can we get back to just having a good hunt and not documenting it? But people like me, man, people like me with podcasts and writing articles, ruining it for other people.
1: Yeah. That that's kind of a a tricky area to navigate for sure. Cause you know, with, Steve Frith, who I went on my sheep hunt with, you know, he was very careful through the whole process of filming and editing about how much of the landscape are we going to share? What are we not going to share? That type of thing. And then some people are just completely oblivious and like, check out this awesome view from on top of here. And they do like a big 360 of the area. And it's like, oh, that completely blew out that spot for anyone who wants to take a couple hours to try and do a bit of sleuthing to find out where they went, that type of thing. And especially non-resident people that you know of course they want to record their hunts and stuff but it's like and I commend them for it because I would love to have a you know I love having a memory of my sheep hunt so I commend them for doing so but at the same time it's like yeah going up one's gonna blow out the spot that this outfitter hunts out of let the general public who's up here who hunts regularly sleuth out yet another area for them to find a, a hole for to go in for sheep and it's just it's a tricky situation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: can't begrudge people for wanting to tell a good story, but at the same time, it'd be nice if they were maybe a little bit more courteous of the local person. And I, I think you and I talked about this exactly uh, the last podcast, just to, I think I, I was maybe too excited about sharing sp- more specific details. So I wasn't super specific, but, I definitely started thinking and, and looking at other people and how they told stories and think, well, they didn't. They left a lot of stuff out here, and like, oh, that was on purpose. That was, <laughs> I mean, was okay. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. So it's yeah, it's nice to to have that uh, figured out before you realize. You know, in some cases, you can't put the genie out of the uh, take the put the genie back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And there's, Absolutely. A, I think, especially with, with, uh, Southeast Alaska steelhead, there's a river that is on everybody's radar and that's the big one that everybody goes to. And it's just crazy with crowds. And so a lot of these other rivers that you're fishing, like man, I, I want to share and talk about it, but, uh, not reveal it in a way that's going to get more traffic here. Cause that's the thing Like you can market that I can make my, my YouTube video, you know, get a lot more clicks and hits and, and shares and whatnot. If I reveal a lot of details but uh, then I'd be corking myself, so I don't want to do that. And I you don't know. So, what? Uh, what's the it, that closure on the um, for the sheep? What did they close last year? It was the west of the Sag River or west of the road.
1: What was the? What was that closure? It was like twenty six unit. Um, I honestly, I don't know but it's up there where there was a lot of people who were, I think it was North of the Brooks was the area up there. Um, that was closed for sheep hunting, even for residents. And so there's a lot of people up in arms about that rightly. So, but that was weird when
0: we were driving up there for the caribou hunt, we saw the signs and people had obviously made plans to go up there and may have already been up there. And so there were these signs that said, yeah, it's, it's canceled. Um, that would have been incredibly frustrating if you were up there and you'd paid all the money and then uh, they close it down. They closed it pretty close to the season.
1: Oh yeah. And especially for, you know, guides where they have to book sheep hunts sometimes three, four, five years in advance. And then they're getting ready for a season. All of a sudden they got a refund, you know, a whole season's worth of clients. Yeah. They uh, close it tuesday july
0: 26th the federal subsistence board closed it that was for portions of 24a and 26b wow. population experienced an apparent decline between 2012 2017 primarily due to a series of difficult winters but since 2018 sheep numbers appear to be low but stable the federal subsistence closure will be in effect from July 26 2022
1: to June 30 2024. See, when it says low but stable, that word stable, it's like, okay, there's no reason for this now. Yeah. It, it's like if it was low but and not stable, it's like, okay, you have some management wordage verbiage in there. Mm-hmm. that indicates that maybe there is a reason to close this but if it's like oh it's low but stable then no it's it's a crazy federal
0: overreach yeah it's not a high blast hunting unlike the the 40 mile caribou herd where all of a sudden things get out of control pretty quick um I mean, it's good that you you can't just blast all the way at, at all these sheep it's hard to get to it's good to that you know you want to manage in for the future but you know there's been a couple of these decisions the caribou in the Cotsby area, Cotsby area, and then this one—you just, like, what are we? Are we closing down because we don't like people hunting? Any people hunting? Is it the non-resident people?
1: Is it the non-rural people? Why do we? What are we doing here? You know, I, I feel that there is probably more of an argument to be made about a caribou closure, just for the simple fact that they generally are, you know, a lot more migratory and easier getting for rural people. Who live up there but for sheep it's like there's not a lot of rural people who yeah you know are just trying to scrape by who are then <laughs> taking their time to go get sheep yeah expending miles that much away. yeah calories and yeah no they're they're generally not the population who's targeting sheep so it's for that specific one it's it's kind of egregious yeah it's tough, man. See how things
0: work out. But uh, what else? Uh, what else you got? We're getting on uh, at six twenty-two a.m. I got to do my whole morning routine and uh, then get to school and, and try to keep the kids motivated in these last couple weeks of school. I bet that's very difficult. Just pre- you got to bring the heat. So, as soon <laughs> as they they sense that you are excited for summer too, then it just. It becomes hair braiding and text messaging and gummy bears so it's it's not you got to you got to keep after it that actually happened in my 6 hour class yesterday there was there are two kids that were braiding hair what in the world there were two A students and they had like some uh, audition for the the ballet after school and i was like Duh. so one girl was like working on her presentation while she was getting her hair braided so i was like well, i can't be too mad but it's pretty ridiculous and I made it very known that I thought it was totally ridiculous and there were no standards <laughs> uh, anymore and that uh, their futures were at stake because I had no standards for them. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. So, all right, man. Well, was good to talk to you. Appreciate, uh, absolutely appreciate everything and uh, glad you had a good time in Belize and we'll, uh, we'll share some, some potential properties we'll go in on. Um, maybe find a nice, uh, Ten by ten square of uh, beachfront property. You could put a
1: yeah. We we can get a big six-man tent there and huddle up.
0: Yeah, perfect. Cool. All right,
1: man. Take care. You too. Later.